Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew 21. That's where we find ourselves uh, in our study through the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 21. Matthew writes, he says, Now when the days drew near, uh, sorry, when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. Verse 3. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately they will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, a full, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and, and did as Jesus commanded them. And they brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. So if you're visiting with us, if you're new with us this morning, we've been studying through the Gospel of Matthew. We study verse by verse through the entire Bible because we want the full counsel of God to play its mighty role in our lives. Um, the Word of God is the primary method that God has chosen to speak to us in these days of ours. And we believe that the Bible speaks to every aspect of life. You know, the answers are found in the Bible. And we're so grateful that we can turn to the Word of God and find wisdom and, and direction in this life. And you know what? We believe that the, the Bible, the Word of God, is powerful, that it is living. And it's through God's Spirit and through hopefully the, the simple teaching of God's word that, that we're changed, that we're molded into the image of Jesus Christ. And, and, you know, I won't speak for any of you, but honestly, that's something that I desperately need and desire. Um, this morning, we come to Matthew 21. And what we want to do is we want to keep in the back of our minds now that um, as we continue this study through the book of Matthew from this point forward now, we're entering the final week of Jesus's public ministry. This, this chapter is the beginning of the end, right? In less than a week, Jesus is going to be offered as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. And he's going to be nailed to the cross. He's going to be crucified in four days from this point going forward. It's a very short time. This final week begins with what we call the triumphal entry, Jesus entering into Jerusalem, which is what we're looking at uh, today. And the week culminates with the resurrection. So the week begins with Palm Sunday, uh, is what we call it. And it ends, uh, you know, with what we call Easter. And personally, as I was kind of going through this this last week, I was thinking, you know, it's actually pretty cool, I think, for us. Because um, we're looking at all these things at Christmas time. I mean, to me, I think it's like the Lord is allowing uh, us to see Jesus and his purpose for coming into the world through this great overview of events. 
And I feel like, you know, we've been given a special gift. I've never been in this portion of Scripture during this time of the year. It's like a special gift to help us, to bring us to a new depth of understanding of our Savior. You know, and the Lord, how greatly He desires to draw us into a deeper uh, relationship with Him and to grow in our understanding. And, And again, I just think it's just so cool you know, that we're studying the triumphal entry. We're going to be looking at the crucifixion and the resurrection. You know, um, during the time that we're celebrating the birth of Christ. I mean, I, I just think that that's really nice, uh, neat. Well, as a church, we're going to be looking at this last week of, of Jesus' life in quite a bit of detail in these coming months. And I hope and pray that it's going to be, you know, a great blessing to you. I pray that as we study the events of this final week of Jesus's ministry, that the Holy Spirit will do a special work in each one of our hearts, that he'll reveal Jesus to us in a greater way, and that we would be just overwhelmed, you know, just left breathless and speechless when we see the depth of love that Jesus had that would move him I mean, you think that he left heaven. He was born uh, a little child, born of a virgin. And, uh, you know, he would leave that relationship with the Father. You know, the love that would move him to do that, to come and to experience skin knees and, and, you know, losing teeth and going through puberty and all those things. You know, that the love that was behind all of that, and then to give his life for us. Boy, and pay the price. You know, I just pray that it will just, God will just do a special work in us. You know, that we would see and enjoy just the relationship that we have with him and that we would desire to go deeper with him. You know, I pray that the Lord would draw each of us into a deeper walk with him, especially during this time. So verse 1, Matthew chapter 21, verse 1, it says, Now when they drew near Jerusalem, and if you've been studying with us, if you've been going with us through the gospel of Matthew, Jesus and his disciples, they left that northern area of Galilee. They've crossed over the Jordan. They're uh, coming down the eastern side of the Jordan River. You know, it's referred to as that Transjordan route. And uh, they're coming down that eastern side of the Jordan You know, it was a common route that people would take traveling from the north to the south and uh, back up to the north. Uh, It was very common. And when Jesus and his disciples got to the area of Jericho, they would cross over the Jordan again back into Israel. And last week we saw, you know, Jesus healing two blind men outside of, of Jericho. You know, one of them was blind Bartimaeus. And these two blind men, they were healed and they were saved. And as a result of being touched by Jesus, as a result of the compassion that Jesus, you know, showed them in their hopeless condition, uh, they became followers of Jesus and they joined uh, the disciples and followed Jesus another 15 miles up to Jerusalem. Whoa, wait a minute, Gary. You know what? What kind of shenanigans are you trying to pull here? I mean, last week you said that, uh, you know, Jericho was... 15 miles northwest, or sorry, northeast of Jerusalem. And it's true. I checked it in the Bible. But now you're saying they travel up to Jerusalem? No, no. 
they're going south. They're traveling down to Jerusalem. Well, geographically, that's true. You know, Jerusalem is southwest of Jericho. Um, but when you travel to Jerusalem, you always go up to Jerusalem. You're always traveling up to Jerusalem when you're going there. Now, as Jesus would have come uh, there to Jericho, crossed over, and then made that extra 15-mile trip up to Jerusalem, as he came into Jerusalem that day, he would have come over the Mount of Olives. Now, for those of you that have been to Israel, maybe you can picture in your mind, when you come to the crest of the Mount of Olives, um, before you start going down, before you start the descent, the entire city of Jerusalem is before you. You can see the whole thing. It's really wonderful. And on the eastern side, uh, the southeastern side of the Mount of Olives is a city called Bethphage, right? And that's where Matthew says they've come through. The other Gospels tell us that they came through Bethany uh, into Bethphage. And so Bethany is uh, two miles back towards Jerusalem, you know, um, and Bethany, you'll remember, uh, whose town was it? Who lived in Bethany? Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. Yeah, yeah. Every time Jesus was in Jerusalem, it seemed that he spent time at Martha and Mary and Lazarus' house. That's where he kind of hung out. Uh, they were close friends. Wouldn't you like to be known in that way? Wouldn't you like to be known in that way? I mean, Jay Garbarino, a close friend of Jesus. Jill Neuenschwander, Tom and Donna Ray, close friends of, of Jesus. Boy, you know, that's what I want in my life. I want people, when they look at me or when they think of me, I just want it to come to mind. Gary Barrow. Man, that guy's a close friend of Jesus. You know, it's my prayer that the Lord would work that in each one of us, that we would just be close friends of Jesus. Now, I think it's interesting to think about who's in this crowd following Jesus to Jerusalem, okay? We've already mentioned blind Bartimaeus and the other guy that Jesus healed outside uh, there at Jer Jericho. Certainly Martha and Mary, you know, they're in the crowd along with Lazarus, who was dead and is now alive. You know, I'm sure they're in the crowd. Simon the leper, who Jesus, you know... Um, healed. He's no longer a victim of that terrible disease, right? He's probably in the crowd, and, and I'm sure there's many, many other people that Jesus have touched, that he's healed, that are, that are traveling with him in that crowd. Mary Magdalene, who Jesus cast out seven demons, we're told. Uh, I bet you she's in the crowd. You know, it's a very interesting group of people who are following Jesus, and it's a group of people who are indisputable proof of Jesus' deity and the power of God in his life, that he's able to do what only God is able to do. And yet, with this wonderful crowd of people, the religious leaders are still going to fight with him. They're still going to refuse to acknowledge um, him for who he is, the Messiah, the Son of God. And it says in verse 1, now, when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olive, then Jesus sent out two disciples. It's interesting to me because it seems like Jesus is always sending his disciples out by twos, you know? And I, I can't think of um, a time where he sent out uh, one disciple 
He sent out Peter to, you know, cast in a line to catch a fish to pay the temple tax. I think that's the only time I can think of Jesus sending out a single disciple. In the book of Ecclesiastes, we read Ecclesiastes 4.12, says, uh, though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. And a, thre- a threefold cord is not easily broken. Now, you know, when people um, read this verse, they often think of the marriage bond. You know, they, they think it re- refers to marriage, and, and it certainly does refer to marriage, but contextually, it speaks of the friendships that we have in the Lord, right? The threefold cord. When you have a friendship with another person and Jesus is at that center of that, that friendship, that's when that friendship is the longest, or sorry, the strongest. You know, we read in Ecclesiastes, starting in verse 9, Ecclesiastes 9 and then uh, the following, says two are better than one. And again, you hear that verse often at um, marriage conferences, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand them, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. So the Lord sending out his disciples, uh, we see in Matthew, in twos. And it's so wise. It's so very wise. It's not good for you to be a lone traveler. It's not good for you to be, you know, a lone disciple. It's not good for you to be alone. Um, You know, should you fall, you don't have anybody around you to help pick you up, help lift you up. You know, uh, I have godly guys in my life that I can turn to, you know, that love me and they strengthen me. They're an encouragement to me and I love them and I'm able to encourage them to run the race. You know, it's not good if you aren't uh, in a relationship with other believers, that you don't have other believers in your life uh, with whom you fellowship with and are encouraged by. We need to be in community. You know, we need other believers to stand with us when we're going through warfare. We need other brothers and other sisters in our lives. We need to support uh, one another. We need to love one another. We need to encourage one another, especially as these days of ours are, are growing darker. You know, it's true that you're saved alone. Salvation is something that you have to, to uh, deal with God individually. You have to take care of it with God individually. It's something between you and God alone, right? It's true that um, I can't you know, exercise my faith on your behalf. I can't place my faith in Christ for you. And it's true that you're saved alone, but we're not saved to be alone. And we're not saved to remain alone. We need to have one another in our lives. You know, the Bible teaches, the New Testament teaches us that we're a living temple. You know, we're all stones being fit together in this living temple. We're supposed to be part of a body. You know, a thumb or, or, you know, an eye, it's not good by itself. You know, if you go walking down, you know, 
Main Street, and you see an eyeball laying there on the ground, it's kind of gross. Like, what is that? That's disgusting. You know, a knee or an elbow is not intended to exist uh, all alone. We're saved to be in this body, the Bible says, that we need one another. We need friendships and we need relationships. You need to do everything you possibly can. Now I'm just speaking as your pastor, just trying to encourage you. You need to do everything you possibly can in this body to get into relationship with other believers. You need to do it, right? I've seen it over the years, you know, people who don't have friends. They don't have another brother or another sister in their life. You know, they're, they've just remained on the fringe. They're going it alone, you know. They don't have any friendships in the body. You know, I've observed that those people, you know, they never really take off for the Lord. You know, they just don't. They just kind of flounder. You know, and I've seen on the other hand, I've seen uh, over the years, you know, people that have surrounded themselves with other believers, right? People, those people just do so much better uh, in their walks with the Lord. And even if it's just, you know, one strong Christian in your life. Boy, you know, uh, what the Lord can do with just two believers that are fully committed to him, two believers, what they can do in the name of the Lord, and the Lord will use them and will take them. I've witnessed it over the last 42 years of being a Christian. God will take those two people and use them mightily in ways that they've never uh, imagined. And so, you know what? I do want to encourage you uh, this isn't part of our Bible study, but this is something that is important. You know, life groups, our life groups are going to be starting out uh, in the new year. Uh, you know what? They're intended to give each of us an opportunity to take part in normal, healthy body life within the church. You know, to promote friendships, to encourage one another to run the race that's set before us, to be linked together, to be joined together with other believers who are willing to pray for you and willing to support you. You know, it gives us a, the opportunity to play this vital role in the lives of other people and have them play that vital role in our lives of encouraging us to run the race. So we're going to be announcing life groups, uh, you know, the start of life groups and the locations really soon. And I just want to encourage everyone, you know what? Take steps, whatever steps are necessary to be in this next session of life groups. We need each other. And life groups is just something that God has been doing in our, in our uh, body. It's just been wonderful. It's just been amazing. So I encourage you. Well, Jesus uh, sent two disciples. In verse 2 it says, He said to them, Go into a village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. You know, Matthew mentions the donkey and the colt here, while Mark and Luke, they only uh, mention the colt. You know, it's, it shows us, actually, Matthew is revealing to us just the, the gentle nature and the tenderness of, of Jesus Christ because he doesn't want to separate this colt from its mother, right? So he says, hey, bring them both to me. And Jesus is going to ride this colt into Jerusalem. Well, why why a cult? And the answer is because it's been prophesied, right? This is what the scriptures said would happen. 
500 years before Jesus was born into this world, the prophet Zechariah, and maybe you know the reference, it's Zechariah 9.9. He prophesied this event. Says Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. And that's what we're reading about right here, is Jesus the king coming into Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just in having salvation. And in that phrase, he's just in having salvation, it could also be translated, he is righteous and he's coming to bring salvation. Zechariah 9.9, 9, it continues that he's lowly and riding on a donkey. And we read it specifically, a colt, a foal of the donkey. You know, it's interesting to me that Mark and Luke's account of these events, they tell us that this colt, uh, no one had ever sat on this colt before. Uh, it's Mark 11, 2 and, and Luke 19, 30. You know, they just add this another level of detail to the story here. And nobody's ever sat on this colt. It means it's an unbroken colt. Jesus riding this colt into Jerusalem is a miracle in and of itself. Let me tell you. So, but you know what? It's crazy because riding an unbroken colt is no problem for the creator. The one who's going to sit on this colt is no ordinary man. Jesus is the creator. John 1, 3 says, All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made. Not only were all things made by him, the Bible teaches us, but all things were made for him. Colossians 1, 15 and 16 says, He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation. Now, when you read that, you have to understand firstborn is not a term of chronology. Jesus is God. He's eternal. He's unborn. He's always existed. You know, he's not the first of many sons and daughters as many cults would, uh, you know, claim. Firstborn here is a term uh, regarding preeminence, right? Um, and if you're taking notes this morning, you know, I would refer you to Exodus 4.22. I would refer you to uh, Psalm 89.27 and Jeremiah 31.9. Exodus 4.22, Psalm 89.27, Jeremiah 31.9. If you want to chase that down further, it speaks of Israel, Jacob, being the firstborn. He wasn't. It speaks of um, David being uh, the firstborn among kings, preeminent. Well, yeah. Ephraim being the firstborn. He wasn't. So, you know, those are good references. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created that are in heaven and that are, in, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him, right? You will never, I will never, discover the true meaning of life until we recognize that we were not only created by him, but we were created for him, right? You know, it's not until we're living our lives in a pleasing way to him that we'll ever experience true satisfaction and fulfillment, lasting fulfillment in this life. You know, but once we start living our lives to please him, 
You know, that's our goal, where that's our mindset, that I'm going to live my life to please Him. Hey, that's when we begin to enjoy a level of fulfillment that we would never know otherwise. You know, it's so wonderful. And we read, you know, uh, that Jesus sent his two disciples into the city where he found the young colt, and they were to loose it, to bring it to him. And it says, verse 3, Jesus tells them, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them. And I think that that's an important phrase. Look how Jesus identifies himself, right? How he refers to himself. He refers to himself as the Lord. Jesus is the Lord, right? And I'm not talking, you know, uh, that, that, you know, he's just the Lord. What I'm talking about specifically is, is he your Lord? Not do you know him as your Savior, you know? I'm asking you, is he the Lord of your life? Is he truly your master? You know, I think that these things, we, we can just like blow over, but it's important to stop and take a minute and think it through. Is Jesus the Lord and master of my life? Am I living a life to please him? Is that my goal in life? You know, or am I just playing games, you know, going to church, but living a different life, you know? It's not the way it should be. Jesus says, you know, you just tell them the Lord has need of them if, if anybody says anything to you. And you know what? They'll immediately send them with you. You know, and, and here's something else. Doesn't it strike you a little bit odd that Jesus has need of somebody else's cult? You know, um, I think it's an interesting op observation to, to note that Jesus borrowed somebody else's little donkey, right, to ride into Jerusalem. When Jesus was born, he borrowed somebody else's manger so he would have a place to lie down. Um, you know, in his ministry, in teaching to reach others, you know, he borrowed somebody else's boat and was cast out and then taught the crowd. Um, he had to borrow a denarius from someone to teach the Pharisees about rendering to God what's God's, you know, because, uh, speaking of our lives, because we're the image bearer of God. He had to borrow that denarius. You know, when Jesus died, he borrowed somebody else's tomb. And here we see he borrows someone else's donkey. Why do you think Jesus has to borrow other people's stuff? Have you ever thought about it? Why is that? I mean, he owns everything. You know, so I guess that's one way of looking at it. It's all his, so he's not actually really borrowing it. But, you know, I think the answer is that it's intended to draw our attention to the fact that Jesus was poor, right? 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus needing to borrow these things, it all speaks of him becoming poor for our sakes. You know, him becoming poor that we might be saved. You know, I also think it's interesting to note that when Jesus is accomplishing the work that the Father uh, gave him to do, he did it, but he did it with the help of other people, right? He borrows this little donkey. 
He could have just spoke a little donkey into existence right there. Bam, you know, it wouldn't have been, you know, too difficult for him. He spoke the planets into existence, the universe into existence. But isn't it interesting that Jesus, in order to accomplish his work, he partners with somebody else, right, who, you know, is willing to use what they had to give it to him for his purposes. You know, the Lord's way is not to work without us, right? The Lord wants to work with us. He wants to work with you. He wants to work through me. He wants to partner with us. And, you know, personally, I wonder if when we get to heaven, we're going to see all the things the Lord did with us. And I wonder if he's going to show us all the things he wanted to do with us and through us as we just would just give things to him that he's given to us. I mean, I think it's important for us to take note that Jesus did his work through partnering with someone who was willing to, to give to him what they had so that he could use it for his glory, you know? And I, and I just think about us as a church. Now, what would God do if we were just willing to give him what we have to use for his glory and for his purposes? You know, hey, I have a voice. I can use it. I can sing on the worship team. You know what? I can play an instrument. Well, I can't play it really well, but, you know, I can practice. And I can offer that to the Lord, that, that gift that God has given me. You know what? Kids like me. I kind of like kids, too. I mean, sometimes they're a little bit. But, you know, most of the time I like them. You know, I can partner with Jesus to accomplish his purposes in their lives. You know, God wants to work in our lives in amazing ways. He does. You know, I, um, I see people behind the scenes here giving them themselves, making this place a comfortable, you know, a, a nice place to come to worship the Lord. And, and just they're working hard to make it, you know, uh, great for us that we can just sit, worship, you know, learn the Bible, learn about the Lord. You know, God wants to do things in our midst that are just wonderful and he wants to do it through you. He wants to use what you possess. And praise the Lord, we don't all have the same giftings. You know, uh, that's what makes the body so wonderful, so credible, is that we all have different gifts. We're all, you know, gifted in different ways. We would be so ineffective if we all had the same gift, if we all had the same talents. But on the other hand, it's such the beauty of the body of Christ is we're so effective, all of us possessing different gifts and talents, just different things, right? And, you know, we would be so much more effective if we would just bring all that the Lord's given us under his control. You know, I know for some of us, you know, it's a little bit hard, like you don't really quite know exactly how the Lord wants to partner with you or how he wants to use you. You know, praise the Lord. You know what? If you don't know, if he, if he hasn't revealed that to you, you seek his heart and ask him, Lord, what are you doing? How can I just be part of what it is that you want to do? You know what? We're praying for you Saturday nights. I'm praying for you. I'm praying that, that you'll discover how the Lord wants to use you in mighty ways, bringing glory to his name through the things he's given you. Well, Jesus is... Jesus instructs his disciples, if anyone asks you what you're doing, untying that donkey, just say, the Lord has need of them, the donkey and its colt, and immediately he will send them. 
Mark's gospel, Mark 11, 4 through 6, Mark says, so they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, what are you doing loosen the, loosening the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus commanded, so they let them go. And again, to me, it kind of raises the question, how did Jesus know this donkey, and this colt was going to be tied there that day? Well, you know, again, it could have been that he knew because he knows everything. You know, that, that could well be the answer, right? But I don't think that that's the answer. It's probably not the answer, in fact. Um, we need to realize that this day is not just another day. This day is not just an ordinary day. Have you ever heard, this is the day the Lord has made and I will rejoice and be glad in it? Well, yeah, of course I've heard that. And I sing it all the time. Yeah, you know, many people interpret that verse meaning, this is the day. Today, this day, this is the day the Lord has made. And I'm going to, you know, rejoice and be glad today, right, in what the Lord has done. But that's not actually what the verse means. Psalm 118 is a prophecy about a particular day. It's a prophecy about a specific day. It's a prophecy regarding the day that Jesus, the day that we're reading about, that Jesus, the Messiah, enters into Jerusalem. That's the day that it's referring to. This is the day that the Lord has made. This is the day that was prophesied in the Old Testament, prophesied a thousand years before these events that we're reading about in Matthew. These events were prophesied the exact day that these uh, things would take place. You know, many scholars believe that Jesus made prior arrangements for that cult uh, to be tied there on that day. And uh, as you study the Gospel of John, you know, maybe you can um, see that. You know, all the Gospels, but specifically the Gospel of John, Jesus speaks of his hour. His hour has not yet come. It's a repeated phrase. The other Gospels, you know, say it a little bit differently. They say it like this. When Jesus healed the leper, Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one, but go your way and show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony. When uh, Peter made the confession that, that Jesus was, you know, the son of, was the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus commanded his disciples that they not tell uh, anyone who he was, that he was the Christ. You know, again, Jesus, when he knew that people were coming to make him king after feeding the 5,000, you know, he purposely avoided them and uh, slipped away. When Jesus healed those who were blind and mute, he charged them often saying, see that you tell no one. I mean, Jesus is trying to keep everything on the down low. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't want anybody to spread the news that the Messiah had come because its hour hadn't yet come. You know, and those guys that he healed, of course, they went out and they told everyone what Jesus did for them. I can't really blame them. You know, I mean, it's, it's just so exciting when God works wonderfully and powerfully in your life. You know, Matthew 12, Jesus healed the multitudes and warned them not to make him known. When the demons, you know, people that were demon-possessed, when the demons would see Jesus, I mean, they would begin crying out, right? Because they knew he was the son of God and he would rebuke them and, and, and uh, he would rebuke them because they knew who he was, it says. 
right? They knew him. He would have rebuked the, dem uh, the demons and, and command them to remain silent and not make him known. But now Jesus' hour has come, and now it seems that he's purposely orchestrating the events, right? It's time for him to be presented as king. So uh, he's made the arrangements for this cult to be tied there on this particular day. Jesus, with his foreknowledge, he's orchestrating these events, and he's going to fulfill prophecy, right? He's going to accomplish his work, and he's going to do it, as already pointed out, with the help of others, partnering with this man and with his family that owned this little donkey's colt. Now, again, it's important to remember, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. Matthew, more than any other gospel, Matthew is showing Jesus as the fulfillment of Old Testament uh, prophets. Jesus is the, uh, you know, Matthew pre presents Jesus as the Messiah, as the King of the Jews. So Matthew is pointing out to us this prophecy that's being fulfilled by Jesus, saying in verse 4, all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, tell the, daughter of, tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Again, fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, verse 6. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, and they brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. So they kind of take their clothes and make a little saddle uh, out of their clothes on this little donkey, and, they, and Jesus sits on this donkey in verse 8. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And John's gospel tells us what kind of branches that they were spreading on the road. Do you remember what kind of branches they were? Yeah, palm branches. That's why we call it Palm Sunday. You know, that's as tough as Bible study gets. I'm just telling you, it's... it's so simple, so wonderful, right? This is the Sunday prior to Jesus's crucifixion. And they're spreading their clothes and doing that, spreading their clothes on the road, laying these branches down. What they're doing is they're paying homage to the king of kings coming into the Jerusalem. In a sense, what they're doing is they're paving the way for him. They're rolling out the red carpet for the king of kings as uh, you know, he's coming into Jerusalem as prophesied in the Old Testament. And in verse 9, <clears throat> then the multitudes who went before, <clears throat> excuse me, and who followed crying out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of God, blessed is he is, who is, uh, comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So there are these two groups of people. You know, one went before Jesus and another followed behind. And these two groups of people are singing back and forth. And again, this is another fulfillment of Psalm 118. Save now are the exact words of Psalm 118, verse 25. And save now, you know, in Greek, what it is, is Hosanna. That's what Hosanna means, save now. And they, they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Again, the exact words of Psalm 118, verse 26, prophecy being fulfilled here. The very words that the people are going to cry out were written, prophesied a thousand years earlier by uh, King David. They're crying out these words, recognizing Jesus as the descendant 
of David uh, who came to offer salvation. And you know what? That's what Hosanna is. Jesus, save us now. That's what they're crying. They're crying out for deliverance. They're crying out for help. Hosanna, save now. It's the cry of a people to their king for salvation. And again, who's shouting out Hosanna? You know, the blind who have received their sight. You know, it's being shouted out by the deaf and dumb that have been healed, that have received their hearing and an ability to speak. Hosanna is being shouted out by those that were dead who have been brought back to life again, right? Save now is the cry on the lips of the widows who have been cared for and the little kids that have been blessed, right? Jesus' name is on the lips of the lepers who've been cleansed. All these people are shouting the praises of Jesus, praises for what he's done in their lives and who he is. You know, we have the very same reason to praise him. How many of us were blind, but now he's given us sight to see? You know, how many of us were dead, but he's breathed new life into us? We've received life from him. How many of us were lepers, you know, just being ravaged, eaten away by the incurable disease of sin? You know, all of us were dead until he gave us life. You know, all of us were blind until he gave us sight. I mean, he gave his life that we might have life. You know, oh, that our response to him would be worthy of him as our king. You know, our lives going forward should be joyfully surrendered to the Lord on a daily basis, right? As our king. And we should never grow tired of just shouting out his praises. And we should never be embarrassed of, of praising him because of what he's done in our lives. I tell you what, guys, you know, I, I can't speak for you, but I was running to hell as fast as I could, throwing away my life a thousand different times, a thousand different ways, and he saved me. You know what? I'll never grow tired of thanking him for that tremendous blessing in my life. Well, God had promised David that from his lineage the Messiah would come. And the people are now recognizing, is what we're uh, understanding is that people are recognizing Jesus uh, as the Messiah. And they're crying out, this is the day. Now, the king is coming on a donkey, just as Zechariah prophesied. The kingdom is coming, the kingdom that God has promised David. And of course, you know, most of them didn't understand you know, most of them were thinking about a political or an economic or, you know, a military type of, of savior. You know, they, they were thinking physically. They were hoping for that savior to come and loose them from their bondage. And when they hear that in the Old Testament prophecies that that's what the Messiah would do, they were thinking of the Roman oppression, right? They were thinking that the Messiah would come and throw off the oppression uh, that Rome had on Israel. They didn't understand that Jesus was coming to loose them from the bondage of sin, right? And it's so interesting that they were crying out, Hosanna in the highest, or literally, save us in the highest. I mean, they don't actually understand what they're saying, but it also was prophetic. What they were saying is, 
save us in the highest possible way. Save us for heaven. And they didn't understand, but prophetically, they're crying out for the salvation that only Jesus can offer, a salvation that he was bringing into the world. Jesus, who is just and who is righteous, he alone possesses salvation. He's come to save the world. If you turn real quick with me to uh, Luke's account, Luke chapter 19. If you can't turn there very quickly, we're going to have it up on the overhead for you. But Luke chapter 19, uh, starting in verse 37, says, Then as he was drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, and as you descend the Mount of Olives, there's this natural bedrock path, you know, that comes down the mountain. And you can walk on that path. And it's probably the very same path that Jesus makes his descent on. And uh, those of you that have been there, you can maybe picture it in your mind. I'm looking so forward to when COVID is over and we can go as a church and, and see these things for ourselves. But it says, as he was drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice. Remember what Zachariah said? He said, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, right? Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming. And what does Luke say the people are doing? Verse 37 continues saying, the whole multitudes of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with loud, a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And the peace that's being referred to here is the peace that's, that is being made with the holy God. Right? We should give God the highest possible glory because of what he's done that day. What he's done in our life this day. In, in the fact that he's taken the enmity between God and man out of the way. You know, the Bible teaches that we were once enemies of God. And it's only through faith in Jesus Christ and his substitutionary sacrifice that we're able to enjoy peace with God. Colossians 1, 19 through 20 says, For it pleased the Father that in him, that is Jesus, all the fullness, speaking of the fullness of deity, should dwell. And by him reconcile all things to himself, bring them into a right relationship. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And that's what these guys are talking about, the peace that Jesus brings. And back in Luke 19, verse 39, and some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And what the Pharisees are saying here is, Jesus, correct the crowd. They think you're the Messiah. I mean, how silly is that? They think you're the fulfillment of the prophecies and the promises given to David, you know, they think you're that coming king. You need to tell your disciples to stop it. But Jesus doesn't stop it. He doesn't stop it because he is the king. Jesus is the Messiah. He has come, right? He is just and having salvation, lowly riding on a donkey, just as Zechariah 9.9 said. The first time Jesus came, it was to bring peace. Okay? The second time he comes, he's not going to come to, to make peace. He's going to be coming to make war. The first time Jesus came, he came on a donkey's colt, humbly, right? 
The second time he comes, he's going to come on a white horse as a conquering king. And, you know, he's going to be bringing judgment on all those who will not submit their lives to him, right? And, you know, it's really sweet. Jude 14 tells us that when he comes again, he's going to be followed by 10,000 saints. That's us. You know, how cool is it just to think that we're going to be playing a part? We're going to uh, be part of his coming again that second time. We're going to come again with him. We're going to be part of that number. Luke 19, verse 40, goes on and says, But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. If Jesus has stopped all the people from crying out his praise, from crying out for salvation, the rocks would have begun to cry out. You know what? I don't think it's hyperbole. I think Jesus is saying this is literal, right? This is literal. The rocks, the stones, they would have literally begun to cry out. Jesus is stating a fact here because prophecy will be fulfilled. You know what? Prophecy... Uh, is going to be fulfilled. And the prophecy said that there would be rejoicing and shouts of praise when the Messiah came into uh, Jerusalem. God's word is so certain that if the people failed to cry out, the rocks, the stones, they would have cried out. God's word will come to pass. You can count on it. It's going to happen. You know, <clears throat> Daniel 9.25, uh, many of you are probably aware of this 70-week prophecy you know, the angel of Gabriel comes to Daniel, verse 9, uh, chapter 9, verse 25, and he says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The streets shall be built again and the wall even in a troublesome time. This is a very specific prophecy. It's a countdown to a particular day when the Messiah will come. And the countdown begins when the order is given to rebuild and restore Jerusalem, her streets and the walls. It's not the order to rebuild the temple. That was the order that was given to Ezra. It's not talking about that. It's talking about when the order to rebuild the, the city, primarily the streets and the walls of Jerusalem, right? Well, that order was given to Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, right? We know that that order through secular history, we know that order was given on March 14th, 445 BC. And you may also be aware, Sir Robert Anderson, he has a book, uh, The Coming Prince. He was an a inspector, a detective in Scotland Yard. He looked at the history, he calculated uh, you know, the days of the 70-week prophecy, did all this investigation, wrote this book, you know, and the, it was all based on a 360-day calendar back then. He calculated from the, from the order when, the, when it was given to the point that the Messiah would come in, and enter into Jerusalem on a specific day, 173,880 days. You know, uh, somebody might be tempted to think, okay, and yeah, so what? From March 14th, 445 BC, if you count 173,800 days, you come to the 10th of Nisan. And you know what? The 10th of Nisan was the very day 
that Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem, makes this triumphal entry. It happened to be, <clears throat> it happened to be the same day <clears throat> that you would select the Passover lamb. The same day you would select the Passover lamb. The 10th of Nisan happened to be uh, also the same day that Joshua, Yahshua in the Hebrew, Jesus' salvation entered into the promised land. He crossed the Jordan, entered into the promised land at Jericho. You know, it's kind of interesting, right? Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on the 10th of Nisan. And just as the Passover lamb was selected and would be examined for four days, you can read about it in Exodus, the Passover lamb would be examined for four days to make sure that it was spotless and without blemish. Jesus is now going to be examined four times. He's going to be tested four times by the religious leaders, you know, and we'll look at these in coming studies. The lamb was selected on the 10th of Nisan. It was sacrificed on the 14th for Passover. So too, Jesus enters into Jerusalem, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world on the 10th of Nisan. And four days later, during the Passover, he's crucified. Prophecy fulfilled with incredible accuracy. Daniel's prophecy was fulfilled to the day. I mean, it's so amazing. This is the day that Zechariah spoke of. This is the day the Old Testament spoke, uh, Old Testament prophets spoke of. <clears throat> and Jesus says, even if the people would uh, be quiet, the very rocks would begin to cry out because prophecy will be fulfilled. It's going to come to pass one way or another. Every detail of prophecy will be refilled, fulfilled. Back in Matthew 21, verse 10, and when they had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved saying, who is this? All the city was moved as Jesus entered in Jerusalem. The Greek word used there, speaking about the city being moved, it's, where, it's the same word that we get our English word seismic, right? You know, like a seismograph. It's a word that is used to describe earthquakes. The entire city of Jerusalem shook, not physically, probably, but spiritually, emotionally. The whole city was shaken. It was moved because it was the day that Christ, the Messiah, the son of David, entered into the holy city in fulfillment of prophecy. Man, I bet you it was something to see. In verse 11, it says, So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. And you know, I mean, to me, I just see this just, this scene, just tremendous commotion just going on. People rejoicing, people crying out, Hosanna, save now. And as Jesus uh, comes into Jerusalem, people started to ask, Who is this? Who is this? And the multitudes who were going before and following behind, you know, they just proclaimed, this is Jesus, the prophet uh, from Nazareth of Galilee. But you know what? Jesus is far more than just a prophet. He's way more than just another teacher. All mankind will, must acknowledge him either as their king or as their judge, Right? Paul wrote to the church of Philippi, Philippians 2, 10 and 11, saying, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow 
of those in heaven and those on, on earth and of those under the earth. And every knee should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. Not just say it. Yeah, Jesus Lord. Okay, whatever. Not like that. But you know what? Understanding what that means. He is Lord. He is master. He's deserving of all that I am. And Peter said it this way, Acts 4.12, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men uh, by which we must be saved. John 3.36 says, John the Baptist is speaking. He says, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe, you know, and that belief has to affect your life. It's not enough just to believe, yeah, Jesus, Son of God. It has to have an effect on your life. He who does not believe, he who there's no effect upon his life, he who does not believe that the Son, uh, that he's the Son, shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Jesus is the Messiah, and he brings salvation to all who are willing to see it. He offers peace with God, forgiveness of sins, and eternal life. Jesus gave his life to take the penalty of our sin. Man, it's something that we can't take lightly. The common people love Jesus. They were the ones that are receiving him here, praising him, crying out, save now, Hosanna. They received him as the Messiah, as the Son of God. You know what? It was the self-righteous. It was the religious leaders who rejected Jesus. You know, they were uh, the one who, speaking of, in John 1, 11, says, he came to his own, his own did not receive him. It was the religious leaders, the very ones that should have been heralding his coming. You know, they're the ones that are rejecting him. And they rejected him because he didn't go along with their twisted interpretation of the law. You know, he called them out for their mishandling of the law, their legalism, how they twisted the law and made it a terrible burden for the people, made it something that God never intended it to be. And we're told they rejected him because they were envious about his popularity and the following that he had. John tells us that it's this event, this entry into Jerusalem with all the people praising him that prompts the religious leaders to act. This was the last straw. You know, they had to kill him and get him out of the way because the whole world, John is saying, is going after them. And that rubbed them the wrong way. The religious leaders rejected Jesus, saying, we have no king but Caesar, right? You know what? That was their confession of blindness. You know what? They refused to even see Jesus' miracles as proof of who he claimed to be. They refused to surrender based on Old Testament scripture and based on the sure word of prophecy, Peter said. They refused to surrender their life in obedience to him. The problem with rejecting Jesus and refusing to see is the longer a person goes on, the blinder that person becomes. That's just the, the way it is. Because of their rejection, you know, less than 40 years from this day, Jerusalem is going to be leveled. Judgment because of the religious leaders' failure to recognize Jesus as Messiah because they fail to recognize him in their day. This their day is what Luke says, how he says it. To reject Jesus is to sin against the love of God, you know, who sent him to be an atonement for 
our sins. You know, sinning against love, that's a, that's a tough thing. To reject him will result in standing before a holy God and having to give an account why I failed to give my life to him, why I failed to receive that free gift of salvation and make him my Lord and Savior. And everyone who rejects Jesus will be found guilty because there's no legitimate reason to reject his sinless life, his substitutionary sacrifice, which is just a theological way of saying he died in my place. It was a him for me trade. He took my sin. He gave me his righteousness. What a good deal that is, man. He paid my debt so I wouldn't have to. You know, it's God's heart. You know, just in closing, it's God's heart for each of us to turn to him, for each of us to partner with him. He wants to borrow what he, uh, you know, what we have to use, uh, you know, for his glory. The things he's given us, our time, our talents, our possession. He wants to borrow those things to accomplish his work in this world, right? And he wants us to partner with him for the expansion of the kingdom. And personally, you know what? Everything I have is his because I just want to be part of what it is he's doing. You know, everything I have, he's given me anyway. It's all his, right? You know, I think as, a, as the church as a whole, but especially here with us, Calvary Chapel Truckee, maybe especially is the wrong way to say it, along with us here at Calvary Chapel Truckee, I think what the church needs is an awakening. You know what? We need to see more clearly Jesus as King, as the Messiah, as the great I am. We need to allow him his proper place in our life as believers, right? As Christians, we need to, to see him in ways that moves us and shakes us up, right? Shakes us to our core in awe and wonder. You know, man, I want to be left breathless and speechless in his presence. And I pray that each of us would experience him in new ways going forward, especially as we're on the brink of a new year, that we would hold nothing back from him. We would give him everything in order that we might be part of whatever it is that he wants to do in us as individuals and through us as a church. You know what? Every prophetic detail has been fulfilled. The next thing on the prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. Man, how sweet will that be? You know, the, the church says, come quickly, Lord Jesus. You know what? Today would be good. You know, I don't know about you guys, but you wake up and you feel your age, and it's like, man, that's a good day because usually I feel much older than I am. You know what? If anybody's here, if you're uh, watching online and your walk isn't where it's supposed to be, maybe you're not a believer at all, you know what? This could be your last chance to get it right. Today is the day of salvation. You know, none of us are promised a tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. You know, we need to look to him, surrender our heart, look to him, and just, just, Lord, take anything that you want from me. Take my sin. Bring correction. Lord, take my stuff. Use it for your glory. Lord, I'm yours 100%. Use me, Lord. Be the Lord of my life. Be the master. That's the kind of attitude we need to have going forward. And God will do great things through us individually as in a church. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for your goodness, 
for your grace. Lord, I thank you for the sure word of prophecy that we have, that we can, you know, place our faith in you. Lord, it doesn't have to be, you know, just based on our eyes or based on what we hear, based on our senses, but a more sure word of prophecy has been given, has been given to us. Lord, I pray for each one of us that we would fall deeper in love and have a greater surrender to you, our lives, however you want to use them, however you want to spend them, all for your glory, Jesus. We ask these things in your name. Amen.